Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 53 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I really hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. And I'm going to be a little bit bold. I'm going to suspect it will because I'm so excited about my guest today. I'm actually going to sit down and talk to Ravi Zacharias. I had a chance to catch up with him when he was in Toronto recently. And I not only caught up with Ravi, but I also caught up with Nabil Qureshi, Alicia Wood, and with Margaret Manning. And these are great evangelists, all of whom work with Ravi, who are going to help us explore how to share our faith in a quickly changing world, a rapidly changing world. So I sit down and talk to Ravi about why he asked so many questions about how to do apologetics by asking questions about how apologetics is changing. And then I ask him, I think the toughest question, how can you believe in a God when they're suffering? And then I talked to Nabil Qureshi about what it was like to journey from Islam to Christianity. And uh, there's some really good stuff in this episode. So if you have a heart for sharing your faith like I do and having people who are on the outside of Christianity come to know Jesus, I think you're going to really find this fascinating. Ravi Zacharias is probably one of the top evangelists in the world. I know he is highly, highly respected, speaks something like over 200 times a year. Um, and has done that for decades now, just equipping Christians to share their faith. So super honored to have him on the show today. And uh, this has been a bit of an interesting month. Last week, we celebrated one year of the podcast. If you haven't subscribed yet, I would encourage you to do that, because if you did, you would have gotten our very first bonus episode. These episodes always release on a Tuesday, but last Thursday, I released the very first bonus episode, and it is the entire first year in review. Best of. A lot of fun to do that episode, and just two to three minute clips of some of the top moments of the show in the first year. So if you haven't dug fully into the archive, it's a really quick introduction to that. And you get all that when you subscribe. And speaking of bonus episodes, there's another one coming up two days from now, if you're listening on release day, on Thursday, and then another one again next week. So there'll be two more shows next week, and you don't miss any of them when you subscribe. So the bonus episodes coming up on Thursday, September 17th and Thursday, September 24th are a brand new thing we're trying out. We're not going to do it all the time, but we might do it once in a while. It's just called Ask Carrie. And I'm going to sit down and answer your questions. I'm already doing that on Periscope. I'm Carrie Newhoff on Periscope and having a lot of fun with that. But this is like more in-depth, serious answers to your questions. And if you've got a question, it's not too late to squeeze yours in. You can just use hashtag Ask Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y, that's C-A-R-E-Y, Ask Carrie on Twitter, or you can go to my blog, carrienewhoff.com, and you'll see on the right-hand side a little button that says, got a question? Just click on that and then leave me a voicemail, and I'll even play it back on the episode. So that's this coming Thursday and next Thursday, and then I'm back next Tuesday with Judd Wilhite, who is one of my favorite leaders, leads a great church in Las Vegas, and we're going to talk all about that. So it's a great month, and we're celebrating one year together. We are also, also celebrating the release of my new book. Really excited for the release in October of Lasting Impact. And the good news is you can pre-order it now. Just go to lastingbook.com and you'll find all the details there, including where you can order it from. And it's available on Amazon and Orange Books and iBooks now. So that's 
really exciting. And on that website, lastingimpactbook.com, you will also find all the information you need about the pre-order bonuses that are available for a limited time only. So if you order right now, here's what you're going to get. You're going to get the free audio version of the book, absolutely free, included as a bonus. You will get the EPUB version of the book, free if you buy the paperback. And then the other thing you're going to get is access to an exclusive webinar with me where I will walk you through how to have meaningful conversations with your teams, whether that's your staff or your elder board, to really help you make progress as a church. So I'm going to share some of the things I've learned, and uh, that's only for people who pre-order the book. And all the details on how to get those bonuses are on the website. And then finally, if you're one of the first thousand people to order the book, you will get a limited edition, lasting impact, frameable poster. That's right. We've gone all out, had this custom design, It's being done in a real cool vintage style. First thousand people to order the book and register for the pre-order bonuses also get that Lasting Impact Book poster. You can find all of that at lastingimpactbook.com. So I got to tell you, it was an absolute thrill a few months ago to sit down live in person with Ravi Zacharias and the other folks you're going to hear from in this podcast. And that was at uh, Tyndale University College in Toronto, Ontario, not all that far from where I live. And Ravi was there for his summer school of ministry that he does every year. And as you might notice, the format's a little bit different from my normal interviews, if you're a regular listener. That's because I was doing this for two reasons. Number one, this podcast, but also for television. So I'm working working these days with a television show called 100 Huntley Street here in Canada, actually broadcast across Canada and into the U.S. and around the world online. And you can find it at 100huntley.com. And some of the interviews have already been broadcast on TV. Uh, Some of them will come out a little bit later, but uh, they graciously agreed to give me the files so that I could share them here on my podcast as well. So it was great. I did two interviews with Ravi. I'm going to start with one here on the podcast. And then if you hang on till the end, I've got the second one where Ravi really tackles the whole question of suffering and how to approach that one. He's just got brilliant answers in that area. But I also had the chance to sit down with a number of other people who just really impressed me with their insights, and I wanted you to hear from them. So you're going to also hear from Alicia Wood, who works with Harvard-educated students, like their Harvard students, and their faculty in Boston, Massachusetts, trying to explain faith to millennials. You're going to hear from Nabil Qureshi. He is a former Muslim who found Jesus and uh, even sometimes puts his life on the line talking about his love for Jesus Christ. And fascinating guy, fascinating story. And then you're also going to hear from Margaret Manning Schull. And she is somebody who just has an amazing way of talking about how to share your faith naturally in relationships. And I think you're going to find her interview a delight. And then we're going to come back with uh, Ravi, as I said, to wrap up today. And one thing that got settled for me, because I asked him myself, is how do you pronounce your name? I've always said Ravi. It's actually Ravi. Ravi. Like Ravi, but with a V. Ravi Zacharias. So, uh, man, what a what a joy it was to sit down with him. And by the way, all the links for any of this are in the show notes. You can just go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 53. Here is my first interview with Ravi Zacharias. 
I'm at Tyndale University College at the Ravi Zacharias Summer School, and I'm so thrilled to have Ravi Zacharias himself with me today. Welcome, Ravi. Thank you, Kerry. Good to be with you. It is great to be with you, and I think like many, many people, I've heard a lot of your addresses, read some of your books, and apologetics and, and evangelism is such a big subject. And I think for a lot of us, we think, oh, I have to have all this knowledge, and I don't think I'll ever measure up and I won't be able to defend my faith. But where I want to start today is one of the things I've seen you do incredibly well is, is in, in your stories when you're speaking and in your writing, you often talk about conversations you have with people. And one of the things I've seen is, is that often, you know, when you're walking out to your car one night after a talk, when people start asking you questions, you'll ask them questions back. Mm -hmm. And you'll ask people of different religions questions back. So you answer a question with a question. Is that something you do regularly? And, and tell me why you do it. Yes, I do. And going back to your preamble, Kerry, in terms of uh, the intimidation of uh, knowledge and uh, all of that, you know, A.W. Tozer, when he came to the church here in Toronto, it was interesting. His assistant used to be my first boss when I went into ministry, Bill Newell. Really? And Bill Newell told me when he was sitting next to A.W. Tozer with a high, sophisticated uh, group of people that were there at the welcoming dinner, said, uh, he looked around and he looked at Dr. Tozer and he said, you know, Dr. Tozer, I really feel out of place here with all these highly qualified people. And he said, Tozer leaned over and said, Bill, we're all ignorant, only in different subjects. <laughs> and I think <laughs> that's, great. that's the reality. We, we can't all be specialists, but we need to know where to go to search for answers, especially if somebody is asking us those hard questions. Now, as to the main part of your question, questioning the questioner, mm -hmm. I didn't come up with this on my own. Uh, I looked at how Jesus was dealing with this with the subject. Whenever anybody asked him a question, good master, what should I do to attain eternal life? Now, you and I typically would say, wow, this is the question I've been waiting for from you for so long. Let's sit down and in five minutes, we draw some pictures and ask him which picture identifies his life and what the answer is. Jesus looked at him and said, uh, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. And what Jesus is really doing is opening up this man within his assumptions and determining the entry point of the discussion. Mm -hmm. Those are two very critical facts in dialogue. You got, you've got to open the person up within their own assumptions. That's why even C.S. Lewis talked about the fact that nothing is so self-defeating as a question that has not been thought through before it has been fully posed. So. What Jesus is saying to this man is, are you calling me God? Are you, or are you saying it's possible to be good without God? Hmm. And if you're calling me God, are you going to listen to my answer? And if you're saying it's possible to be good without God, where did you arrive at that from? So it brings the point of the questioner very quickly into focus in what they assume. So when people talk to me, for example, they say, what's wrong with such and such? I'll say, you know, it'll really help me if you can first tell me, is anything wrong with anything? <laughs> is, the moral, is there a moral wrongness to anything in your life? That then allows me to understand where they are coming from, how they make their judgments, and whether they are willing to give that prerogative to the other person as well. That's the important thing. So yes, questioning the questioner, that's the first reason. But there's a second reason to this, Gary, and that is behind every question is a questioner. Mm. If a person is raising the problem of pain and evil, and I learned this early in the ministry, I can still remember it vividly. 
I was in Birmingham, Alabama. It was the late 70s. I just started out. And there was a couple that I was talking to, and they were raising the question of the problem of pain and suffering. I was about to go into my answer when I noticed in the pew behind them was their baby. And one look at that child, and I knew there were serious deformities in that birth. It suddenly gave me pause that I better recognize this question is not just a philosophical one, it's a felt need. So both in terms of the existential reality and in terms of the assumptions, it's important to question the questioner. Mm -hmm. That there's always a reason for the question. And I think often in apologetics, we would tend to think it's academic, yep. like the problem of suffering. Well, you're asking me the theodicy. Nobody's been able to solve that in 2,000 years. How am I going to solve it? But really, the question might be, why did this happen to my baby? Yeah, that, that exactly. And how do I cope with this? What possible answer could God have for me in the midst of all of this? And I always look at Mary herself standing in front of the cross you know, watching Jesus being crucified. Uh, I think it was Jeremiah Denton, one of the former senators in the United States, saying her face showed grief but not despair. And even though she had questions, she had faith to spare. And it go, he goes on in that poetry to raise the struggle of what must have been going on in her heart. I think the, of the verse that Simeon gave to her when the baby was to be born, woman, a sword is going to pierce through your heart. And I wonder if that came back. So in the thick of pain and suffering, even if you know there is one who has the answer, it still is a journey one step at a time before you look at it from the other side of reality. So I think one of the things so many of us, myself included, appreciate about your ministry is incredibly well thought out arguments. I mean, that sometimes take really years to refine. But for the average Christian who's sitting there going, I've read one or two books, I've listened to a couple of podcasts, how can questions be a gateway into a conversation with their friends? Where would they start? One of the great uh, unfortunate realities of my own journey in faith is people think of me as an intellectual. I'm really not. Okay. I really am not, Carrie. You know, I wish I were. It would be nice to hide behind some sophisticated degrees and so on. I just ask a lot of questions myself. Mm. And when you're reading heavily, you are listening to other responses to the same issues. And like uh, G.K. Chesterton, I would say you become a polyglot. You're able to take different people's perspectives and put it together into a composite. And ultimately, I'm convinced that answers are not just theoretical. Answers are also relational. Let me give you an example. A little baby or say a one-year-old going into a doctor's office and is in the arms of his mother and says, you know, my mother wouldn't take me anywhere to inflict any pain, so I don't know where this place is, but I'm going to go. And all of a sudden he sees this big needle coming and he's going to get jabbed. What is his answer at that point? His answer is, I have no clue why this is being done to me. All I know is I'm with my mother. And even when she takes him back again, he's going to be even more mystified. It takes many, many years and he says, now I have the answer to this. A lot of our answers actually are born out of a relationship before they become propositional answers. And I think that's a very important clue to our journey in faith and in truth. So when I journey through these ideas myself and work them through, today as I go across the globe, we have packed audiences wherever we go 
And what is encouraging to me is they are trusting you as the speaker to be able to minister to them and bring the bridge between the head and the heart. I don't take this privilege lightly. I take it very seriously and it's very intimidating and fearsome, but it's a privilege God gives and has to be honored with your life and with your trust in him. One of the privileges you have is to see what's happening around the world. And you've also seen that over the course of really four decades of ministry now. I think a lot of us, I think all of us would probably agree that the culture in the West has shifted dramatically in North America. What changes in evangelism and approaches to evangelism have you seen over the last four decades in our culture? The cultures globally have changed, Kerry. That's Mm -hmm. what I see. China, India, the Middle East, But the interesting thing to me is those who have come from a backdrop of naturalism or secularism or anti-theism, like China or Romania, where I was just a few weeks ago, the audience that night was 10,000 strong. You couldn't get them into the building. And then the next day I was meeting at at the... what they call the people's house, which was Ceausescu's home, two million square feet, you know, Hmm. the second largest building in the world after the Pentagon. And the senators and all were sitting there listening. And one of them said, when I finished, this is the first time God has been mentioned in this building here. This is the first time a prayer has been prayed. Now, such hostile antitheism took place. But in the West, what has happened is we've come from the bequest of the Judeo-Christian worldview. The ethics that we followed, whether we like it or not, came from that worldview. And we are jettisoning that worldview and think we can still hold on to ethics. China wants American speakers to come because they recognize, or North American, I should say, American, Canadian, or even for that matter, English speakers, because they know they are living off the capital of of the Judeo-Christian framework. And they want to see that ethic. And in atheism, they did not have it. So those parts of the world are going through change. Then you go to the Middle East. My colleague in Alexandria tells me, for the first time, atheism is on the rise in Egypt because they have seen what their religion has done to their young. And they say, if this is what it is all about, we don't want it. So the young are asking questions of the worldview that has proceeded. And I think the changes are taking place here. We become very naturalistic and anti-theistic and therefore the change is quite staggering in our time. So it's almost a pendulum swing in opposite directions based on the previous generation. And so you're seeing almost an inverse thing happening in the formerly communist countries or godless countries where people have a hunger for God and where God was actually a part of the culture, people are rejecting it. Yes, and I believe we will learn the hard way that this is a mistake in the West. Mm. Why was the West so successful? Why did we all come here? I mean, I came to Canada when I was 20 years old. I got off the plane, it used to be called Malton at that point, you know, it's Pearson Airport now, rented a room near Eglinton and Young, Um. you know, paid $8 a week. Uh, My brother paid $8 a week, we were $16, we were in one room sharing two beds, so on, starting off our young lives here. It was a different world in Canada then. And when I came here, I saw the ethic, I saw the values, What is going on in some parts of the East? Systemic corruption. If you ask any Indian young man today, what is India's greatest strength? He'll say intellectual ability, science, engineering, all this stuff. You say, what is the greatest weakness? They'll say corruption. All the corruption that goes on. In Hindi, they say, under the table. The under the table deals that are done. 
what happened to ethical systems of thought? It didn't generate real ethics. But when you have a personal relationship with God and you know there's accountability, you have an ethical value or norm that is part and parcel of society. We're losing that here now. But once upon a time, it was very much here in North America. So I think those are the, those are the changes that we're going to start feeling down the journey as we go. I think you get a lot of resonance with what you just said. And I think there are many people who are almost despondent over what we see happening in the West. So let me flip it a little bit as we wrap up. Is there anything in the West right now with these cultural changes that give you hope? Like, do you see a little crack in the door with a bit of light coming through? Or does it feel more bleak than that to you? Uh, you know, the wheat and the tares are growing side by side. If I were to listen to some of the academics and what they're instructing the young, then I say to myself, my word, where are we going with all of this? The total skepticism, the relativism that is uh, endemic in the academic world. But then I look at young people who come to the meetings I remember one young gal in, in Cornell saying to me, she walked forward and she said to me to talk, she said, most of my life I am living with naturalistic assumptions and the scientific worldview. You are here talking about a supernatural dimension to life. And she started crying. How do I make this paradigm shift? What reasons can I find to make the paradigm shift? I said, why are you asking? She said, because the other road is a dead end road. She said, I have no meaning. I have no basis of value judgments. She said, I'm emptier than I've ever been before. And so what I say to you, Carrie, no matter what university campus we go to or what business setting we're talking or what political arena we're in, the place is packed. So it gives me hope that people are searching and at any time the young are searching, there's hope for the future. And not only are they 18, 19, 20, 22, 23 year olds, the 14 and 15 year olds. I get letters from 12 year olds. When I go and speak in audiences, there are 12, 13, 14 year olds who bring one of my books and say, can you sign this for me? I'm so profoundly moved that by that. Moving. Yeah. So I think there is hope. Uh, anytime you see a young audience that's eagerly listening, it takes one person to change the world, you know, and it can be done and I have that kind of hope. After all, when we believe in God mm -hmm. and know the gospel story, how can we be hopeless? We know God is sovereign. He's not caught by surprise. And I, he is the one who moves the hearts of the heart of a king. And I, I believe it, in time, time, things will change. Right now, it looks pretty bleak. So there's more from Ravi Zacharias at the end of this podcast. Right now, I'm going to jump into a conversation I had with Nabil Qureshi. Nabil is a medical doctor who actually grew up, as you're going to find out very quickly, in a devout Islamic home. And just loved Allah, uh, really believed in his faith, not a lot of respect for Christians, um, because we didn't know how to defend our faith until he met someone who changed his mind and God began to move in his life. He is now a follower of Jesus. Uh, he's a young leader, an incredible speaker, just released a brand new book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, a fascinating read. And here's my conversation with Nabil Qureshi. I'm at Tyndale University College here at the Ravi Zacharias Summer School, and uh, I'm thrilled to be with uh, Nabil Qureshi. Nabil, welcome. Oh, it's a pleasure. Really glad you're here. You have a fascinating story that I think a lot of people are, are really going to appreciate. And you got a brand new book out. It's all about seeking Allah but finding Jesus. Or, uh, and 
And you were raised in a Muslim home, and sort of the story of your life is that you actually became a follower of Jesus. But I think what will surprise a lot of people is that you grew up in a very healthy, very loving Muslim family and actually took your faith extremely seriously as a young adult, as a teenager. So tell us about that journey from Allah to Jesus. Well, you're absolutely right. I was raised in a family that loved Islam, and I was taught to love Islam. I was taught to love Allah. Uh, but concomitant with that was a belief that Islam was a religion of peace. And so when I saw things happening in the news overseas as a child, I thought that's not my religion. Uh, it didn't really strike home until 9-11 uh, when you had to deal with it. And I realized, well, these people really did claim to be Muslim. Uh, so that was such a stark contrast to the Islam that I knew. Uh, at the same time, I had just started university, and so I was meeting new people. Uh, I had been used to challenging Christians in their faith. I had realized that most Christians simply were unable to defend the basic tenets of their faith. Why do they think Jesus is God? Why do they rely on the Bible? What is the Trinity and why believe in it? When I asked Christians about these things, they never could respond. But now when I got to the university, I was meeting people who had begun to think about these things. And so I have made a friend who specifically had accepted Christianity a few years prior. And he began answering my questions and I began challenging him some more. And I learned about the Bible. I learned that it was reliable. Uh, I learned more about the Christian faith, the case for the Christian faith, that it's strong. And at the same time, I studied the historical foundations for Islam. And I realized that the religion that I had been taught, a peaceful religion, one that depended on the truth of Islam, was actually not the historical nature of Islam. And it was when I came to that point that I had a real crisis in my life about whether I'm going to continue with the faith of my fathers or accept the evidence of the Christian faith. Yeah, now, um, I remember in your story that the veracity of Scripture, the reliability of Scripture was a huge factor in your decision to follow Jesus. Tell, tell us more about that, because you, you were trained as a Muslim to believe that Christianity was completely made of, of fabricated Scriptures and uh, a series of, of historical inaccuracies. Is that right? Essentially, um, in Islam, the central doctrine is called Tawheed. It's the idea that Allah is one, um, and that's kind of pounded into your head. It's not just monotheism, it also denies the Trinity. That's what it's about. Right. There's actually a chapter in the Quran that Muhammad said is worth one-third of the entire Quran, and all it really says is God is not a father and God is not a son. Hmm. And so when you drill that into a Muslim's head from the moment they're born, uh, by the way, ask any average Muslim on the street, what's the first chapter they memorized? It's going to be that one. Um, wh when you've drilled that into someone's head from childhood and someone presents Christianity to you and says, well, God's a trinity, but then they don't know what that actually means. <laughs> or they say Jesus is God and the Father is God, but they are not the same thing. That starts telling the Muslim, wait a minute, these Christians, they've missed religion. They don't understand. They're very confused. And so you take a look at the Bible. The Bible does teach the deity of Christ. The Bible does teach Trinitarian uh, philosophy and doctrine. And so for the Muslim looking at that, they have to say, well, the Bible's been corrupted. Mm -hmm. It's been changed. The Quran is perfectly preserved. Uh, so it took us a long time to actually investigate the manuscript evidence. We looked at the history of the textual transmission of the New Testament, and I realized that no, the Bible has never been changed in any way that uh, is uniform and undetectable. Um, we, we know exactly the historical origins of the scripture. And when it comes to the Quran, though, actually, 
there was a very specific moment in its history when a leader destroyed all the Quranic manuscripts and sent out an official copy. And when I, when I realized that I'd been poking holes at the Bible this whole time, whereas the Quran was the one that was open to criticism, that was just a huge paradigm shift. I felt as if my world was shaking underneath me. And along with that came all the doubts that, that maybe my parents were wrong, maybe my, my grandparents were wrong, maybe the imam was wrong. And that's a very hard thing for someone to grapple with. That's huge. I mean, as I listen to your story, I imagine I was raised in a Christian home. I, I imagine myself in your shoes, but the flip side being true that, you know, I'm not just walking away from Christianity, I am converting to Islam or to Hinduism, which is a very different religion than, than Islam. But um, I can imagine that that was exceptionally difficult for you to do. What was, like, was there one single turning point or were there two or three things or was it sort of death by a thousand pinpricks to, to your old faith and resurrection to Christianity? How did that work? What was the turning point for you? I would say the first thing was seeing a Christian who cared about his faith and actually learned the, the, the evidence, the reasons, and, and was able to explain it and articulate it. That was, was a friend first. in university, right? Yes. I had never seen a Christian who was like that before. And then when he was able to present to me the evidence for the Christian faith, that the Bible was reliable, and that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and claimed to be God. These were the, the most important things for me on the Christian side. Then on the Islamic side, to realize there was really no good reason to think Muhammad was a prophet or that the Quran was the inspired word of God. So that was the third. The fourth, I would say, was having dreams and visions. This is a part of, of many um, stories of Muslims coming to know Christ, dreams and visions. It was a part of mine as well. And then the final one would be when I actually turned to the Bible for, for guidance. I felt that it was the Word of God and that God was speaking to me through it. And this wasn't just a feeling devoid of reason. I had done the, the homework and the yeah. research, but now God was speaking to me through the Scripture. So let's go back to points three and four. You, you talked about... <laughs> sort of the veil being lifted over Islam, and you said Muhammad is not really a prophet and the Quran is not really a reliable scripture. How did you come to those conclusions and what do they mean? Well, from childhood, we had been told Muhammad is Rasulullah. He is the messenger of Allah, and he was the greatest statesman, the greatest diplomat, the greatest general. He uh, just worked on women's rights and, and upheld orphans, and that's the kind of man that we thought Muhammad was. When I looked into the pages of history, to actually see the earliest sources on Muhammad's life, both Sirah and Hadith, I began to realize that I had been given a very cherry-picked image of Muhammad, where they took all the best things and, and they presented those, and then they denied the vast swaths of it that were not just appalling, but at times unconscionable. And I, I said, For example. Well, um, one of the things that really got me was uh, in the Quran, multiple times, uh, you see the words, um, such as in chapter 4, verse 24, that allowed for you are your wives and those whom your right hands possess. Uh, I had no idea what that meant. I had read the Quran yeah, many times. I don't times. know what that means either. Well, when I looked at the Hadith, basically what it means is that there were captives of war, women who were captured in war, who could be used for sexual intercourse, sold when pregnant, uh, even if their husbands were still alive, um, this was something that Allah was sanctioning, that you could take female captives and do whatever you want with them uh, virtually. And, and to me, that was unconscionable. Um, and there was much, much more. Um, I, I try not to focus on these things because people no. can get upset when they're... When Understood. They're, yeah, but it, but it's, it is a fact of, of Islam and, and Muhammad's life that many people just try to smooth over and never discuss. 
So one of the objections to Christianity when you read the Old Testament and the Israelites are taking over the promised land is, you know, destroy all the villages. I run into people all the time for whom that's a, a stumbling block. And it wasn't necessarily rape and pillage, but it was, you know, you're killing pregnant women. Isn't that something that's also true of Christian faith? Or why, why was that not a deal-breaker for you? This is generally the most common objection. And I think the reason why it's not a, an issue for the Christian faith is that a lot of what happened in the Old Testament, uh, what was happening in, in those tribes, in those areas, was essentially the worst of many options. I mean, you had many bad options, and you had to kind of, you had to kind of <laughs> take care of it. was the best of the worst? Sorry, that's what I meant. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's the best of many bad options. Yeah. Um, sin had already infiltrated the area. People were destroying one another. This was not supposed to be the M.O., of God's people to go and kill pregnant women. Um, whereas uh, with Christianity, with the New Testament, we're taught to love even our enemies. We're supposed to lay down our lives for the sake of those who are persecuting us as Christ died for us. That's the Christian That's MO. not where the story ended exactly. in Christianity. And I think you're right. When you look at the historical context of the Old Testament books, it was a pretty debaucherous society. And some would see, and I mean, this is going to be incomprehensible to some because we can't see that from a 21st century perspective. But I mean, some would see that as merciful. Yeah. In a very paradoxical kind of way. And it, yeah, when you get into it, 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 it's very interesting, but that's certainly not supposed to be the paradigm for Christians, right. whereas Muhammad is the exemplar for all Muslims. So there was no distinction then, but here is another revelation in someone else that says, don't do that. Right. Okay. That's helpful. Now, dreams and visions. I know that's instinctively where people want to go, right? It's like, oh, tell me more. And why don't I get dreams? And why don't I get visions? So tell us about that. And that you're right. That is a, a, a very typical thing even today for people converting from Islam to Christianity. It is. It's very commonplace. And I think the reason why is that Muslims are not expecting to commune with God the way uh, an evangelical Christian would, for example, or other branches of Christianity. Uh, the, the veil has not been torn. Uh, people are not communing in that way. They're expecting to hear from God only through dreams or visions. Uh, even the prophet Muhammad received, according to Islam, uh, revelations through an angel, not directly from God. So who am I to receive a message from Allah, is how a Muslim would think. Uh, but dreams and visions, they are expecting to hear from God. We actually had a special prayer called Salat Istikhara that was designed to ask Allah to give us a dream for guidance. So... That was the way I knew to turn to God for guidance. And I think that's why many Muslims do turn to God for guidance in that way. And God reaches them where they're expecting to, to hear him. And so what did you hear specifically, or can you say? It would take a while, okay. um, but I had can one vision. Can you give us the thumbnail? Uh, yeah, uh, I had one vision and three dreams. Um, the first dream was a very symbolic dream. Uh, it was confusing to me, but uh, at the end of it, I thought, okay, God, I think you're telling me to become a Christian, but I need something more clear. Right. And so God gave me a second dream that was far more clear. It was actually a, a parable right out of the New Testament. And God put me right in the middle of it. And I had never read that section of the Bible before. Wow. So when my friend David heard the dream, he said, have you read this section of the Bible? And I read it and my, my eyes went wide and I my heart skipped a beat. <laughs> yeah. I said, that's me. Um, and God was telling me, here's where you stand and here's what you need to do in, in order to be what saved. What parable was it? It was from Luke chapter 13. Um, and it was the parable of uh, the narrow door. And uh, Christ was going through the villages uh, speaking the good news, and the disciples asked him, Lord, are many going to be saved? And he said, make every effort to enter through that narrow door. For many, I tell you, will try, and few will be able. And it talked about a feast inside. 
in my dream, I was standing at a narrow door, looking at a feast, wanting to come in, afraid that the owner would come and start before, before I could get in. And that's exactly what the parable was about. And then you had one more. Then I had a third one. <laughs> if you needed more. People are like, okay, now I have dream envy. Like, <laughs> give me a dream, God. Okay. So, well, yeah. And, and one more dream. And go ahead, give us the thumbnail. Well, the third dream was, was one where I was in a mosque and I was on a set of stairs coming up and out of the mosque. Uh, and the people around me were actually people that I respected highly in the Islamic society that I was a part of, but they were all sitting below me or behind me which in that symbolism meant they, they hadn't quite accessed the truth or they were, they were not as far along the path of truth uh, as I was. I was on my way out of the mosque. Wow. Wow. And that combined with the truth of Scripture and your, a friend who could actually defend Christianity. And, and that's exactly the key point. I, I did not hinge everything on the experience of these dreams, but they were confirmatory for all the evidence and the research that I had spent years on. Fascinating. Well, we just have a couple of minutes left, okay. and, and this, this could be like an hour-long conversation <laughs> very, very easily. Uh, and that's why I'm glad you wrote it in the book form and, and, and so on. But um, I know a lot of Christians are having more day-to-day -day interaction in the West with Muslims, maybe than, than was common even a generation ago. What's one or two pieces of advice you would have for Christians who are in regular contact with people who follow Islam? that can help them in sort of the dialogue or conversation? Yeah, I think um, it's, it's really hard to figure out how to approach someone you know very little about. Yeah. Uh, one thing I would say is do not be shy about your faith. Mm. Um, people already assume you're a Christian. If you're white and in the West, people assume you're a Christian. Right. Um, so represent Christ well. Um, be the one to represent Christ as opposed to others who might be living an immoral life or a debauched life. Live a good, solid life. And in that, when you talk to Muslims about Christ, um, just really see them as people. You know, ask them what their job is like, what sports teams they, they like, what issues they're having with their family. You know, get to know them personally. Whenever you can strike up a relationship, that's the direction to take. Not this uh, shoot-and-run evangelism, but actually yeah. develop a relationship. And in that, treat them as a person. Now, the, the verses that come to my mind are Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So as you love Jesus, let them see that and love them at the same time. And that will be powerful. Don't, and also, don't shy away from conversations about faith. Isn't that challenging for all of us as, as we just, you know, we see North America becoming more diverse. And I mean, a generation or two ago, you might never actually meet a Muslim. And now they're in your city, they're in your neighborhood, they're in your school, they're your friends. And so what a great approach and what a great opportunity to sit down and talk with Nabil Qureshi. Now, my next interview is with a really young evangelist. Her name is Alicia Wood, and she's on tough ground. Number one, she's in New England. And I say that as a Canadian, I got friends who minister in New England. And I mean, it's hard. There's not a real spiritual curiosity like there might be in some other areas of the United States. And She's with very affluent, very well-to-do students and faculty. And I talked to Alicia about how she approaches evangelism in that context with affluent millennials. 
Today, I've got Alicia Wood, and she is an itinerant speaker with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. So welcome, Alicia. Great to have you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. You're originally from Rochester, New York. A lot of our viewers can probably relate to that. You're now in Boston these days, where you sometimes ride the subway and hear them call it, what, Harvard? Harvard. It's funny to okay, me. You said that better than me. <laughs> you know, the first week I was in Boston, I got on the subway, and they said, next stop, Harvard. And I was like, Harvard? Wait, it's one of the best universities in the world. Harvard, Harvard, people. But yes, it, it is a very different accent in a very different place, but it's a great city. I love Boston. And it's not bad. You're going to, you know, Canadian viewers are going to love it because you love hockey. I do. You actually play hockey, right? I do. I do. I started playing hockey growing up in Rochester. I went to a Rochester Americans hockey game and just fell in love with the game. And I played in high school and then... Uh, now I just play recreational. And in Boston, mm-hmm. there's hockey everywhere. Everybody loves it. So it's a great place. It's so it's more like pickup hockey now? Yeah, now it's more playing. pickup for fun. And, and what I, position do you play? So I spent most of my time as a defenseman, but um, I've recently moved up to center to forward, which is pretty good. I like that because I get to use my defensive and offensive skills. There you go. <laughs> and, and you really have a heart for students, don't you? Yeah. I yeah, do. particularly students that, well, in Boston, you're going to have quite a few Ivy League schools Absolutely. that you minister on campus. And you have a really heart, uh, big heart for this generation of students. Tell us how you got there. Like, how did you end up just saying, you know what, at this time in my life, I want to work with students? Sure. Sure. Well, I went to the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics and studied apologetics there and graduated. And after I finished, uh, RZM was thinking, how can we incorporate this, these graduates into the ministry in some way and use them in evangelism? And so I was one of the ones that they selected, and they uh, noticed that Boston is a very good place to send an evangelist because people yeah. in Boston are very hostile to hearing the word God or any mention of God. And so that is basically how I end up in Boston around a vast majority of university students. They say the ratio is somewhere around one, to, one out of every four students is this, or one out of four people in Boston is a university student. Wow. So it's a very high ratio that of is. people that are students. And, and particularly in the Northeast, yeah. um, people are, I think, generally seen to be more spiritually resistant. Mm-hmm. Has that been your experience as well? Yeah, it really has. And, and I guess I feel that people have a bunch of different reasons as to why that is. Right. Oftentimes people have been hurt by the church. Hmm. Some people have had just bad experiences. They've had a a family member that maybe has said something. Uh, Oftentimes people have a a misconception about what Christianity is. And they really just feel like Christianity is a bunch of fairy tales. And and so when you mention God, they have this image of a God that you aren't even thinking of. But they in turn see that image of God as being someone that they wouldn't want. We don't Mm. want to deal with him. And and I don't blame them because I really wouldn't want that God either. And so a lot of what I do is to say, I recognize that this is what you may have seen on TV or this may be an experience of what you have. But what if I could talk to you about what he truly is like? Mm. And I think that that's kind of the shift that I focus on because you're right. Once you mention God, it seems like the walls go up and they say, oh, that's great. And they want to change the subject and talk about something else. So what are some points of resistance you're encountering with students today? Hmm. I think some of the biggest points of resistance are they say to me, there's no evidence for this. Okay. This Christianity thing, you guys haven't done any research. You are ignoring science. You are ignoring philosophy. You are ignoring common sense. And you are living for this book that was written 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I've so heard I, that. <laughs> so <laughs> the biggest resistance is there is nothing concrete to this. 
And, and I say to him, well, thank you for sharing that with me. But I think I actually think that there is something concrete to this. You know, and then I begin to unpack why we can trust the Bible or why belief in God makes sense of everything we see around us or how we know there's evidence for the resurrection and how Jesus meets the deepest needs of each one of us. And then we start to see, wow, maybe there is a comprehensive, grounded worldview that Christianity can present. Uh, and so I think that's oftentimes the approach that I take when people just seem very, this is just not for me. And because I go to such a great school and mm -hmm. because I you know, have come to a so great smart. Exactly. <laughs> this is so common sense for me. And they say, so you, Alicia, if you were just a little bit smarter, maybe you would understand what I'm saying. And so really the way I combat that is just to say, well, let's talk about it. And then we end up getting in great conversations, and people are willing to talk about it. So it's 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 a conversation rather Absolutely. than a confrontation. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Let me ask you back to students for a second because yeah. this is a fascinating and a niche ministry too. You know, to actually be at like places like Harvard and Yale and mm -hmm. so on in the Northeast. Really interesting group of student body. There's probably like a top two or three objections that show sure. up on a regular basis. Sure. What do you hear consistently? from students in their 20s? Consistently, I hear a lot about God of the Old Testament. So isn't God of the Old Testament a moral monster and God of the New Testament is a God of love? So it seems to be like this dichotomy between the two gods of the Bible, in a yeah. sense, or personalities of God. I think a second question I get asked is, well, what about the people in the rainforest? Or what about people in remote places where they have no access to Christianity? And you're mm -hmm. telling me that God will send them to hell. And so essentially what these questions are, these are questions that people ask me trying to understand the character and the nature of God. You know, if God seems like a monster over here, how does he seem loving over here? In other words, how can I deal with his character? How do I know I can trust him? So what do you say to that? <laughs> well, that you know, is- In 30 a, seconds yeah. or less, what do you say? <laughs> Uh, you know, I think the very short, the very short condensed version is what I do is I talk about what some of the situations were in the Old Testament. Right. And what you see in the Old Testament is you see people who are committing acts that really we would have an issue with, including mm -hmm. child sacrifice, burning a child while alive in front of many, many, many people as part of a sacrifice. Now, for me, as a person living in this day and age, if I saw a child being sacrificed, wouldn't I intervene? Wouldn't I do the same thing? Which, which I don't even know if I have any friends who wouldn't intervene. And I think sometimes what I do is I try to help people to understand the bigger picture. People usually hear, oh, God did this, God did this, but they never looked at the context and they didn't take the time to actually look in what is actually being said here. And so what I do is I kind of try to help people to understand the context and understand. So really, God is no different between the two. Justice is carried out in the Old Testament and it is swift and it's on people. Justice is carried on the New Testament, but it's on God himself that he takes mm. it. So justice is consistent throughout. Love is consistent throughout. But in the New Testament, God is the, Jesus is the final lamb, the final sacrifice yeah. for justice. And, and for the record, I'm not sure that God ever sanctioned. I mean, the Israelites were told to oppose child sacrifice mm -hmm. in the Old Testament, Absolutely. which is good. Okay, that's really fascinating. You yeah. know, so so you you phrase it in a bigger context, and I think Absolutely. a lot of us freeze in moments like that, and yeah. we're like, oh, I don't know either. Yeah. I skip over those chapters. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like, oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I mean, yeah. and, and you know, I think all of us have been there where we're like, oh, don't ask me that question because I don't know. Right. But it's a continual process and you continue mm. to learn and you go back and then you have an answer next time. That's great. Um, anything else you've picked up in terms of dealing with 
students today? Because I'm, I'm sure a lot of us have like relatives or mm. friends or kids or that neighbor next door that yeah. we're trying to build into sure. who seems just a little bit resistant. Sure. Um, tips. Tips to reach people. Yes, absolutely. Well, understand that I would say, number one, understand that people have legitimate reasons to sometimes be resistant to God. Not everybody mm. does, but there are genuine reasons that people have to be resistant that stem from previous pains or previous interactions. So I think we also, we just need to keep that in mind. I think number two, one thing I really encourage people to do is let people see Jesus before you talk about him. Mm. Are we really demonstrating Christ to people? One of my favorite verses is in Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men, that they would see your good works and glorify your Father who is in right. heaven. Are people seeing your light so that God is glorified through the good things that you do? Your neighbor that's elderly and can't mow her lawn, are you the one over there helping her out? Or the other neighbor who's sick or just had a recent loss in their, or somebody died in their family, are you cooking meals for them? Are you helping them? Are you there just to cry? I think once we demonstrate Christ, people are more willing to listen about him, about who he is. And I think sometimes we get so focused on, oh, I have to learn all these things in order, in order for me to talk and share the gospel with people. And really, uh, what God asks us to do is represent Christ well in so many different areas of our life. Reflect him, show him, and be his hands and feet. And then when it comes time for the gospel, when God opens up those doors, you can then walk into it. And people already have an idea of who he is because of what they've seen in you. Well, Alicia, this has been refreshing, really, oh, really refreshing. You. I think you helped quite a few people today. <laughs> and uh, be encouraged in the work that you're doing in Boston at yeah. some, uh, you know, you're planting some seeds that'll last a lifetime. Yeah, thank you really so much. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you for so, having me. Man, some great tips from Alicia there. And it just made me think, you know, what, what an incredible thing that somebody with that level of gifting, that level of intellect is just at work in some of the nation's best schools. I, I, I was just so encouraged with that. Now, I don't know about you, but I think a lot of us probably get intimidated by apologetics. You know, even those of us who are like paid church staff, we're kind of like, I don't know enough about theology to really talk about my faith. <laughs> you know, maybe I can do it from the platform, but I always get tangled up in conversation. And that's why I'm so excited to share with you this interview I had, the conversation I had with Margaret Manning Schull. And she is somebody who just specializes in relational evangelism. And if you listen to this short interview, you will probably, like me, be convinced that you can have a conversation about Jesus with anyone, anywhere, and she makes it seem completely natural. So here's some hope for the rest of us with Margaret. I'm thrilled to have Margaret Manning here today. Uh, Margaret is part of the speaking team and also part of the writing team at RZIM. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Margaret, uh, sometimes when people think about apologetics and when they think about sharing their faith, they get all nervous, they get upset, and they think, you know, I haven't really read any apologetics books, I don't have a PhD, let alone a degree in this, and I believe the Bible, but I don't think I can defend it particularly well. But you're into something that you call conversational evangelism. So that, that's kind of like a little sprig of hope in a sea of apologetics for a lot of people, I think. Well, I don't have a PhD either. Okay, there you so, go. So uh, I'm just like everybody else in that sense. And I, I really think the key to sharing our faith is building relationships with people, getting to know them. Everybody wants to tell their story. And sometimes when people ask apologetic questions, like, I don't understand this part of the Bible, or I'm upset about what this church did, there's always a story behind that. 
Right. And what I try and help people do and what I personally try and do is actually let's get to the story before we start setting up arguments, as it were, or formal evidences for faith, because people want to be heard and they want to be known. They want to know that you're not just out to make another convert. They want to know that you love and care for them and are interested in them. So conversational apologetics is a way of doing that. Ravi has often said, there's always a questioner behind the question. Mm -hmm. And so my job, I feel like, as a human being, and not just as an apologist, is to actually get to know people, to love people, and then to help them get rid of some of those barriers and boundaries that have come up through experience, through teaching, through all kinds of things, so that they can come to know Jesus, um, hopefully see a little bit of him in, in me caring for them and loving them. That's what conversational apologetics is. Well, I think that's a great approach, but I think a lot of people are even scared to initiate a conversation. I hear people say all the time, you know, <laughs> faith is a very personal thing. I don't know how to bring it up. I don't, I don't even know how to start. So I'm sure there are people who have family members, neighbors, friends, kids, parents, who they want to talk to, but they just don't even know how to bring it up. How do you bring it up? You know, I think in the same way, I still think there are all kinds of um, overlaps that we have with people who maybe don't share our faith. Maybe mm. we like the same movies. Maybe we like the same books. I know the arts is a very key way in which I personally like to um, talk about matters of faith and build those bridges first. Like, did you see that movie? What did you think about this? What did that, what questions did that raise for you? Did it raise any questions for you? And I, I also think in the process of building relationships with people, having people over for meals, sharing meals, of course, is another great way mm. of just getting to know people and building relationships with people. But you, as you share and you hear people's story, you can find ways to ask questions that don't necessarily get at faith right away, mm -hmm. but that provide avenues where those questions of faith and ultimate concern will come up. Right. So, you know, it could be like, how did you like the chicken? What do you think about Jesus? Like, how do you, how do you, <laughs> I love it. How do you bridge that really <laughs> awkward kind of like, how do I get there? Like, walk me through it. Because I think a lot of people have been there and they've got friendships with yep. people, but it's like, oh, it's so awkward. I think in terms of meals, for example, food is a big uh, cultural thing in the U.S., particularly from the region I'm, I'm living in currently. It's all about local and sustainable where, and organ organic. organic. Right? Bellingham, Washington, oh, Seattle yeah. area. Oh, so yeah. we're all into food. Coffee and local. And, and coffee as well mm -hmm. and where it comes from. So if we were sharing a meal together and we were talking about the meal and mm -hmm. food and sustainability, I mean, one way into that conversation would be did you know that um, Jesus spends lots of time eating and drinking in the Gospels, that that was one of his favorite things to do, so much so that he was called a wine-bibber and a glutton by the religious leaders of his day? Isn't that amazing? And to come into it even from something as simple as that, or to talk about why do we care about sustainability? Why is it important? Why is buying local important to you? What does that mean to you? What does that have to do with the stewardship of creation? Why should we be good stewards? Yeah. You know, those kinds of questions. I can see that being a very natural bridge because, you know, <clears throat> you're like, how do I raise this? How do I raise this? But in a healthy conversation, in a healthy relationship, people are asking you questions. Exactly. And they'll be like, so, yeah, why are you so in a local? Or, um, you know, why do you, why do you always have people at your house? You know, we moved into um, our current house about five years ago, and my neighbor's a cop. And... Uh, we have people over at our house all the time. And I said, you probably think I'm, I'm running a drug drugs. operation. <laughs> I'm not. I'm a Christian. You know, we just have lots of friends over. Right. And so we have a very natural dialogue. We go cycling together. We hang out. And, 
you know, every time he wants me to do something with him, I'm like, I got to work. He's like, you should be able to talk to your boss. The who other, thinks is God. The other thing I think we often overlook um, because we do get worried about technique or method is simply to pray and ask God for opportunities in which conversations will go in that direction. And I can pretty much guarantee that God's going to honor that. And it just comes up. I don't know if we'd, I've ever had a conversation where, of, did you like the chicken? And then yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The that's sort of my awkward example. But I do know, but I think it's great because I, I do think there are creative ways if we just stop and think about it for right. a minute even. And I think the building of the relationship is the foundation from which those kinds of bridges will come much more naturally. Right. It's not like, what's your name? Let me tell you about Jesus. But in, in the context of a very natural, open relationship, yeah, you start to explore what's important to you. Let me ask you a question. Is family different? Because I think a lot of us can tend to be more open maybe with our friends than we are with our family. And it's like, we just don't talk about religion in our family. Or I tried that once and, you know, everybody walked out or it got weird. Yeah, the dynamics of family are, are interesting, I would have to say. And I can't speak from personal experience on the faith issue because I grew up in a Christian home. So sure. those were very much a part of our family conversation and dynamic. But I have heard that. And I think particularly with family, we have to be very gentle and sensitive because we have all those little life experiences that have built up. Like, I, you know, I, mm. I acknowledge I'm a sinner. Yeah, and you did this to me, and you did that to me, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, in other words, our family really sees us for who we are. Right. Hopefully, though, they also see how we've been transformed and that we are changing. Maybe it's bit by bit, but I think that family conversations have to be handled particularly sensitively. And... Perhaps there are other ways to go about that. I know for me personally, there are many times when I've said, you know, this has been a very helpful book for me to read. And rather than just, here, read this, read it first or say, would you like to read this together? This has been a really hmm. cool book. It could be a Christian book that's been very helpful, or it might be even a secular book where there are natural bridges and inroads into talking about Christian faith. So um, it's even some things like that can be helpful. And I, again, I, I stress to people that they, your family members, your friends, your loved ones, all those people that you come in contact with, they need to know that you care about them mm -hmm. as a person. And you're going to care about them whether or not they accept faith. And also to take the pressure off yourself, you don't save anyone. I don't save anyone. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm to give witness, of course. I'm not to be afraid or ashamed. But ultimately... God is the giver of salvation and gives that gift in time and through a number of different avenues. We also, I think about Paul and talking about what he and Apollos did in their earthly ministries that, that Paul sometimes watered, Apollos maybe um, planted the seeds, but yeah. God is the one who gives the growth. So we can trust God with our loved ones that he is at work and that we will be a part of that work, maybe not the ones who see the harvest, but we can be faithful all along that process. That's right. Your call is to be faithful in the moment. And I love what you said a couple of times already, you know, pray about it. Because I sometimes forget to pray for opportunities. You pray for situations, but it's like, God, I want to be open today and bring people across my path. And I find when I do pray in those areas, it's surprising who shows up. It really is. Uh, airplane conversations, for example, mm -hmm. or even talking to customs agents as I came across the border. Oh, you yeah. know, all kinds of things can happen where you have an opportunity to show something and say something different. Why are you coming to Canada? And I get to tell them. And they say, well, what is that all about? And you get to tell them. So even something as simple as that 
can be an opportunity to, to share your faith. Yeah, and they didn't detain you. They did not that, detain right? me. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So um, as you're having the conversation with people, uh, the question is going to come up. People are going to ask you, you know, one of, one of the great fears, I guess you could put it differently, is that people are afraid they're going to get asked a question that they don't know the answer mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. right? You're going to get deep into the conversation with your friend and they're going to say, so, creation or evolution, let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. How do you handle that in the context of a conversation? You know, there is nothing wrong if you really don't know the answer or even where you stand yet. You can, it's perfectly okay to say, you know, I haven't really spent the time necessary to unpack that question or to think about that question. May I go and research it and come back to you? That, if you really are feeling unsure or you don't really know how to go into that question, that is perfectly acceptable. And I actually think people respect that because sometimes Christians and sometimes Christian apologists have come off as if we know every answer and we just are ready just like this. And that's not the case. And it's perfectly okay to say, I don't know yet, right. but I will go and find out. I, I honor the question and I honor you as a person enough that I'll take the time to find out and I'll come back to you with an answer if you can hold off on that for me. But maybe, but I do think God's the creator of everything. Yeah. How God did it, that's up for a lot of conversation and let's have a conversation about that. Um, so I think there are ways you can, can help yourself with that to take the pressure off. Probably in the middle of the conversation too, you're going to have people who say, well, that's really great, Margaret. I'm really glad you believe that. And that's probably true for you. That's just not true for me. Is that a conversation killer? It can be in the short run, mm -hmm. but I don't think it has to be in the long run. You can say, okay, I respect where you're at right now, right. but can we continue this conversation? And can we explore a little bit more of why you've come to that conclusion? And let's see if it, makes, it still makes sense as you kind of back them up and they can explore their own worldview, their own assumptions that perhaps they've assumed blindly. Um, so I don't think it has to be. Um, I think for some people, you, you have to leave it at that for that day. Mm -hmm. But I think there are always ways of saying, let's continue this conversation. I want to know more about how you've come to those conclusions. Yeah, I love the idea because I think a lot of people end up like deer in the headlights. And it's like, well, the conversation just died. And I guess the issue is closed forever. But to turn the tables, like you said, and say, oh, okay, I totally understand that. But I'd love to be able to discuss this with you again. Or can we come back to that? Or even yep. to pick it up again another day to say, hey, remember that last time when you said that's true for me, true for you? Can we talk about that? Yes. I, I, and once you talk about it, it's easier to talk about it again. Absolutely. As opposed to raising it for the first time. Absolutely. So if you have someone who's watching right now or listening right now who is still scared and they're like, I don't even know how to start. Is there a place to start that you would recommend and say, you know what, just try this next time? You know, not everybody is a speaker right. uh, and is a presenter. That's not the way in which they best use their gifts or offer service. And I really think uh, in terms of witness. Sure. So I really personally believe that you need to know what your gifting is. So for some people, it really is acts of service or works mm -hmm. of love or ways in which they care, come in and care for someone that perhaps is unique or says something and they can say, you know, I do this because I love Jesus and I love you and I want you to see tangibly the love of Christ for you. So it doesn't always have to be, you. everybody has to be an apologist or everybody has to be able to do it this way. I think there are many ways to come at what Jesus himself did. He was constantly healing people. He dealt with the person right in front of his face. He wasn't thinking about, oh, I gotta go off and heal Jairus' daughter. 
No, who touched me? In the crowds of people around him, he wanted to find who that woman was because she acted so boldly in faith. So I really think um, there are many ways that we can come in and love the person in front of us that don't always have to do with words and with what we say. Mm-hmm. And that's something, uh, you know, we've had a few conversations at this conference with different apologists who really are not so much into the, well, you know, they make the arguments that make us all go, I wish I could say that. But I think every single one so far has said, yeah, but, but sometimes you just have to say you don't know and, and you have to show humility and they've raised acts of service and like just conversations mm-hmm. and questions. And so I think it, probably evangelism is a lot more natural than than we think, and I think you've given a lot of people hope. Good, I'm glad, I'm glad. I think it's as as natural as having conversations and getting to know another person. I really do, and I think when people do that, and they take that fear out of it, like people out there in the world are evil or mean, or they're out Mm -hmm. to get me, when you actually get to know people that are not of your faith or your tradition, you come to see, oh, they're a human being just like me, and we have commonalities and bridges and ways in which you can naturally present the gospel to them. And I think to find common ground with people too, which you've indicated, you know, maybe you do a garden together, maybe, you know, with me and my neighbor, we go cycling together. Yes. And, you know, he's a biker, I'm a biker. I love that stuff. And, or you do a hobby or you go see a movie or you watch a movie together, you have dinner together, that those provide the springboards where you can have more conversations. And I think another challenge, we'll probably close on this, is a lot of Christians just don't know any non-Christians. We live in this little bubble. Yeah. And maybe the challenge for some people is to say, okay, God, how am I going to get into a place where I actually have a friendship with somebody who doesn't believe what I believe? Yeah. I think that is a wonderful challenge, and I would echo it. Um, there are many ways to do that. I recently joined a book club uh, with women who are not from my tradition of faith. And it's been thrilling to begin those relationships and to begin to have conversations where I can share with them some things that they had no idea that Christianity was about because of preconceived notions or things like that. But when they meet a living, breathing Christian um, who can talk about it in a way that is real, they get that and they begin to be drawn because of a person, not just an argument or something that we say. Oh, Margaret, so thank you that. so much. Yes, thank you Thanks for, for having being with me. us today. Margaret Manning. Okay, and if you want more on anybody I'm talking to in today's episodes, just make sure you go to the show notes, and that's just kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 53. Now, my final interview with Ravi Zacharias. So this came back for the second television segment we were doing, and I just wanted to ask him all about that age-old question of suffering. So we touch on a few other things, but that's really what we focus on. And here is Ravi Zacharias once again, this time, on the whole question of if God is good, And if God is loving, then why on earth do we suffer? It's a privilege to be sitting here with you. And and as I got ready for this interview, I thought, man, there's almost any question you could ask. You've written so broadly, spoken uh, for so many years in so many different contexts. But I want to tackle one or two of the difficult problems today. The ones that even for me as a preacher, you come back to and you preach on the problem of evil and you've given it your best shot for 40 minutes, and people line up and go, so how do you respond to a God who allows evil? And you're kind of like, I just spent 40 minutes on that. <laughs> but that that's, you're writing about that again now and the whole problem of uh, suffering. Uh, and that evil. has happened. You know, In <laughs> fact, I was doing that in Washington some time ago, and when I finished, somebody raised the question, and a friend of mine came to me and said, 
were they listening to what you said? <laughs> you know, uh, but let me give a personal word. Please it's do. a real delight and honor to be in Toronto. And this is my alma mater. Mm. You know, I graduated out of Tyndale during the time of Alexander the Great. It goes back a long <laughs> way in the 70s. But it's just wonderful to be here. I met my wife in Toronto. She's mm. Canadian and so on. So there were a lot of nostalgia here. Uh, on the problem of evil, problem of suffering. In my latest book, which I have co-authored with my colleague from Oxford, Vince Vitale, it's called Why Suffering? Yeah, we interchange on chapters and he has some brilliant perspectives. His PhD work at Oxford University was on this theme. But in my opening chapter, I present what they call the trilemma. Mm -hmm. A secular philosopher describes it this way. So the Christians believe God is all powerful. Yes. The Christians believe God is all loving. The Christians know there is suffering. This is a trilemma because it is incongruous. How can an all-powerful and an all-loving God sit back and watch such evil and suffering going on? So he calls it a trilemma. And or sometimes they call it the evidential argument against the existence of God, that this is evidence for non-theism or atheism. Right. I respond very quickly by saying, why is it a trilemma? Why is it not a quadlemma or a quadrilemma or a quintilemma? Because it's also true that God is all wise. Mm -hmm. We don't end our theology with God is all powerful, all loving and evil exists. We also believe God is all wise. And we further believe that God is eternal. You bring just those two elements into the, into the equation and it changes the paradigm. If God is all wise, as you and I have talked before and talked about a baby going in to get an injection and so on, the baby knows that the mother uh, is all-knowing over against what the baby, does, uh, baby faces. We know God is all-knowing. And then you take the issue of time. What happens over a period of time? Let me give you a quick example of this. When I was growing up in India, I was a constant failure, repeated failure, because I never applied myself. And then all of a sudden I passed and very high honors and the ability to join the Indian Air Force. Out of 300, they were going to select 10. I came in at number three on all of the theoretical and physical endurance tests, okay? I was an athlete and so on. So I phoned home and told my dad and mom, I'm in. I'm number three. The only thing left is a psychological test tomorrow, and then I'll be coming back by train overnight, looking forward to being back home. I was so excited. So I sit down in front of this Churchillian-looking wing commander, and he stares at me across the table and he's asking me a few questions. And then he leans over and in Hindi he says, beta. Beta means son. Mm -hmm. He said, beta, you're a good man, you're a nice man, but I'm going to reject you. Just like that. And I, I visibly felt my body start to tremble. I said, you are rejecting me. He said, yes. I said, can I ask you, sir, why? I was on the verge of saying, I've placed number three. Why? But I didn't say that. I said, why? He said, this job is about killing. And psychologically, you are not equipped to kill. Mm. And jokingly, I always say for a moment, I almost wished I could have proved him wrong right then and there. <laughs> <In> <laughs> but moment. Better part of wisdom is a big you. guy. I knew I'd come out second best in that too. I went back by train that night, came back the next morning. My friends and family are waiting at the station in Delhi with garlands and flowers mm. to congratulate me. They didn't know what had happened. Man. Now, it was a few months after that, the opportunity came to migrate to Canada. Roland Michener, who one time became the governor general in Canada, prior to that was the ambassador from Canada to India, was a friend of my dad's and opened the door for us to come here and we came here. You know what, Kerry? 
If I'd been accepted into the Indian Air Force, I was committing for about 20 years. Hmm. I would never have come here. Never would have had the time to sense the call for God into ministry. Never would have seen the life that God has now given to me to be a persuader and uh, help people understand the beauty of the gospel message. That door was slammed. It took years to find out why that door was slammed. And now you say, thank God that door was slammed. Absolutely. But, but so is part of that then, Ravi, this idea that we just assume when things don't work out our way that God isn't good? Is that yeah. part of the equation? It's a convergence of spokes into a hub. So let me put it this way. Even to raise the question of evil and suffering assumes there is good. Mm-hmm. If you assume there is good, you assume a moral law. If you assume a moral law, you must assume a moral law giver. But that's whom they're trying to disprove and not prove. Because if there's no moral law giver, there's no such thing as good. If there's no good, there's no such thing as evil. If there's no such thing as evil, what happens to the question? The question disappears without the reality of God. Hmm. So logically, too, we must have to struggle with the question. Now, somebody must say, might say to me, why do we need a moral law giver in order to have a moral law? That was my next question. Because didn't Kant try to prove that with he, the universal maxim? Exactly. He did. And uh, Iris Murdoch of Oxford University in her book, The Sovereignty of Good, has a tremendous comment on that when she said Kant has this ability to think that we can somehow turn away from Jesus himself Mm -hmm. and find what is good. She said Kant didn't come up with that. There was an incarnation of that long before. His name is Lucifer. (laughs) You know, this is a a philosopher at Oxford saying this. Now, here's the answer to Kant. Yes. No. Because every time the question of suffering is raised, it is either raised by a person or about a person, Mm -hmm. which means the question assumes intrinsic worth for personhood. That would be true. And you cannot assume that without a theistic framework. That's why Kant also, in a sense, he was a churchman, you know, he was, mm-hmm. not, he was not an anti-theist, he was not an atheist, he just believed that ethics, practical... Maybe ethics. we could find ethics apart from God, That's right? right? Which was yeah, sort of yeah. his life quest. So the way I hear that popularly expressed, because this is a fascinating conversation, and one that I think almost everybody has at some level or another is, well, I don't need God to become a good person. I mean, I just agree that, you know, you shouldn't kill people, you should probably be a good friend, generally you shouldn't lie. I mean, I hear that not quite every day, but almost every day. I don't really need a God for that. And if we all just did that, the world would be a better place. Yeah, uh, theoretically that is true. Mm-hmm. But the answers of goodness then come from self-referencing judgment. I determine what is good. I decide what is good. Am I willing to give that prerogative to my neighbor too? Am I willing to give that prerogative to the person who stands in front of a television camera and lops off another person's head, supposedly doing good? How do we arrive at an objective standard if I am only going to do it apart from a transcendent objective worldview? So that's an immediate problem, but there's a greater problem than that. This is true only of the Christian faith, Carrie, and if the listener is hearing me, I want to say this very clearly. In every other worldview, you find a way of being good and find a way of not being bad. But in the Christian message, the, the reality is this, Jesus Christ didn't come into this world to make bad people good. He came into this world to make dead people live. Yes. That's the reality. It is not that we will be good and therefore we will see God. It is the fact that I cannot ultimately 
attain salvation by lifting myself up by my own ethical bootstraps. Every other worldview is good versus bad. If you ask a Hindu, for example, he'll say my karma. If you ask a Muslim, my good deeds have to outweigh my bad deeds. You come to the message of Jesus Christ and it is grace and mercy and forgiveness. That's why even in the Old Testament, you don't get the Ten Commandments until you first get redemption. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, therefore you shall have no other gods before me. Redemption always precedes righteousness, and then redemption and righteousness precede worship. That's yeah. the sequence. And I think even with subjectivism, you end up in the place where you fall short of your own subjective moral sure. standards, and hence yeah. the need for some kind of salvation. I think so. Uh, which of us will deny that? You know, you set your own ground rules and say, I never ever came up to that. So there's a logical problem, there's an existential problem, and ultimately there's a theological problem. And this is why goodness has a long reach into our lives. And I often say pain and suffering are God's megaphone, as C.S. Lewis said. One quick illustration. There's a young gal in outside Atlanta, Georgia, Ashlyn Blocker, I think is her name. She was born with a born with a strange disease. It's called SEPA, congenital insensitivity to pain with anhydrosis. She can't feel pain. And you may say, boy, that's wonderful. If she steps on a nail, she doesn't feel it. No, she doesn't. But the problem with that is, therefore, she doesn't know she's been cut and bleeding and it could be infected. Her mother on television said, my prayer every night for my daughter is, please let my daughter feel pain. So if pain is an indicator physically in this world to something being wrong, how much more in the infinite wisdom of God can it be an indicator that what is wrong is our relationship with him? Do you think, because this, this is a question, and I mean, people will look forward to reading your book, which, which is soon to be released, but this is a question that has plagued theologians, people, the human race for thousands of years. Is there an emotionally satisfying answer I mean, I know that's a very reductionistic yeah. question, but I think sometimes we hear all the arguments and we go, yeah, but my mom died. Or yes, but you should see my brother suffering in palliative care. Or um, you don't know how much my daughter suffers. You know, you have to compare answers. You go to any other worldview, there are no answers. If you're a karmic thing, you know, you're paying for your previous wrongdoing. Right. The Islamic world hardly has any books on this subject matter because it's inshallah, it's the will of God. It's only in the Christian worldview where you have hymn writers, where you have poets, where you have expositions on this theme, where you have Je Jeremiah crying out or you have Hosea crying out, wanting to know why they are suffering, why this pain, why this uh, struggle and so on. There are emotionally satisfying answers as time goes by. I've lived with a lot of pain with a broken back. I have two titanium rods that are about eight inches long, four clamps, eight screws bolting me down. I injured my back very badly. There were times I'd be sitting in the front seat of the car pulling over my fame and I head on my steering wheel and crying. The pain was so intense. And you know what I found? How much it has taught me to depend on him every day to sustain me. There are two things I need with this lifestyle a strong back and strong vocal cords, and I have neither. And God has shown me that in my weaknesses manifested his strength and how his healing hand even came through on my back after years and years of suffering. There is an emotional satisfaction when I know that there is a cross, there is a hill called Calvary, 
There is a suffering savior. There is a relationship where he gives me comfort. As Annie Johnston Flint said, he giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. He added affliction, he added his mercy to multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limit, his grace has no measure, his power has no boundaries known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Here was a woman who was orphaned early in life, was incontinent, was blind, suffering from cancer. Cushions lying beneath her body for months and months of pain, sores from head to toe. And it was the, the biography is called The Making of the Beautiful. She wrote that hymn. There was emotional fulfillment in the intimacy of her life with her Savior. And I believe there is, but it's a path along which you walk and find out God does not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquers through it. He conquers through evil and pain and suffering and makes you the person he intended you to be through that. Well, I really hope that warmed your heart today. I know it certainly warmed mine and it sharpened my mind. That's for sure. You see, I just all day long want to lead a church that unchurched people love to attend. And, and, you know, I pray for my neighbors and I'm trying to interact with people who are far from God on a regular basis. And I just feel better equipped after having conversations like that. I hope you did too. Hey, if you want more, you can get everything in the show notes at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 53. Also, if this episode was helpful for you, I would love for you to leave a review and a rating in iTunes. And hundreds of you have done it. Just thank you, thank you so much. Would you, if you haven't, would you just take a moment and do it? It's just a way of getting the word out. And when people leave reviews and ratings, iTunes pays attention to that and shares the podcast with more people. And so you'll be helping other leaders when you do that. You can also leave ratings and reviews on Stitcher and TuneIn Radio platforms that this podcast is also on. And don't forget, this is launch month for Lasting Impact, my brand new book. So this is about seven powerful conversations that will help your church grow. And in the book, I'm talking about like a lot of stuff that I just face every day as a leader. Question one, why are we not growing faster? Question three, are our leaders healthy? Really? Question six, what cultural trends are we missing as a church? So I try to answer that in the book. You can get everything at lastingimpactbook.com, including a bunch of free bonuses. If you order right now, they're going to go away in a couple of weeks. So if you could do that, that would be awesome. And that's it for this week. Hey, we're back next week with uh, episode 54 and Judd Wilhite. But remember, in the meantime, we're back even sooner. On Thursday with a bonus episode, the very first Ask Carrie. I got your questions lined up. I'm excited. Not too late to ask it for the next time because I will be doing another bonus episode called Ask Carrie next Thursday, you know, 10 days from now. And again, use the hashtag Ask Carrie on Twitter. That's A-S-K-C-A-R-E-Y or just go to my website, kerryneuhoff.com and click got a question. Leave me a voicemail. I'll try my best to answer as many questions as I can in these episodes and uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks so much. And I really do hope this has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.